Hello everyone and welcome to the Hidden Lives of Writers. My name's Fiona Snickers and I'm joined by my co-host, Gail Schimmel. How's it going, Gail? I'm good, Fiona, I'm good. And I've had a nice, steady writing week that has made me happy. Except, there's always an except, (laughs) isn't there? (laughs) I've hit... 15,000 words and you know we talk a lot as writers about the 30,000 ra- word I keep saying 30,000 rand <laughs> I do mean word um, the 30,000 word point where a lot of writers stick at that point um, they've, they've, I've heard talk about the soggy middle yes. and things like that, that that you're in a difficult area but I've realized that at about 15,000 words I have a hiccup where I question my entire existence like I'm why am I writing this book? What does it mean? This is a crap idea. I should probably stop now because for me it feels like if you hit 20, you're in too deep. Right. So I should probably stop now before I've invested a full 20,000 words. So I had to talk myself through that bump yesterday, but otherwise I've had a really good writing week. How about you? I feel like at the moment I'm just having curveballs thrown at me out of left field all the time. And the latest one was that a book I wrote just a little while ago that had a surprise ending, okay? And it, it, it was just meant to be a surprise. It was never meant to be a cliffhanger because a cliffhanger implies that the story's going to carry yes. on. So this is a surprise ending that was meant to be just the end of it. I didn't have to think any further about it. And I've been thinking about it and it reminded me of your book, Two Months, where it ends on a big surprise mm-hmm which if there were going to be a sequel would be a cliffhanger ending. Mm. But have you ever thought about how you would take that? Let's say you had to take that book and write a sequel to it. How would you carry on from that surprise ending? So it's interesting because that surprise ending has not been popular with everybody. I've been highly criticized in some circles for that ending. Okay. Um, and, I, and I've also talked with my agent about the idea if we, if we got a foreign deal on it, if we got a movie deal on it, cause you know, agents have big ideas for you. Would I be prepared to make a happy ending instead of the surprise ending? Okay. So I've thought a lot about how it could turn out to actually be okay. Okay, I feel like I need that emotionally because that book <laughs> scarred me. I think you're going to have to whisper that ending in my ear. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it is a difficult one because I also, I never think in terms of sequels. It's not, except obviously with the Katie Gale writing, but it's not my thing. Once I'm finished with those characters, I'm finished with them. I believe some writers miss their characters afterwards. I'm like done and dusted with you guys. Let me get into a new set. Right. And right. you? Well, in terms of this book, there was a certain set of characters that I did think, okay, they can naturally carry on because they like this sort of criminal investigation unit and you can see them going on to investigate. Having a series. Yes, like a whole series, investigate more crimes. And I had that all in my mind. And the feedback I got, and yes, it is, it's all about foreign rights, movie Mm. rights. The feedback I got was, no, we don't only want to see the detectives moving on. We want these characters to move on. And I thought of them just quietly crumbling to dust (laughs) and not moving on at all. And now I'm having to rethink the whole thing. How does the surprise ending, which I just wanted to make everyone go, ooh, now it's got to carry on. You know, something has to happen after that. So So are you having to write this into the end of the book now or are you having to think about a sequel? I'm thinking about a sequel and I have to put it in the form of a one-page detailed proposal of what a next book would look like. 
That is quite fun, Fiona. Let's be honest. That <laughs> okay. is quite fun. There are worse problems to have. And I know I sound like I'm complaining, but uh, it's kind of breaking my brain having to think of this at the moment. Well, I'm a little bit jealous of you. I think that sounds like a better problem than, than, than should I even be writing this book? Everything I've ever done is wrong. Um, <laughs> Fiona, what have you been consuming to fill up the tank this week with, with these difficult problems you have? Well, you know, we recently had Pamela Power on the pod and we were talking to her uh, a little bit about her new book, My Year of Not Getting Shitfaced. And since then, I have read that book from cover to cover. I thought you were going to say, and since then, I've been getting <laughs> shit-faced. <laughs> well, this is kind of what I want to be talking about. Um, so, you know, a year ago, more than a year ago, this was the kind of book that I would have been tiptoeing around, too scared to read, too scared to look at it too closely, because I would have been worried, what kind of home truths is this going to be telling me about my life? So okay. more than a year ago, we were sort of kind of still in COVID. Mm. I seem to remember the children still being in masks at school. Um, we weren't completely out of it. And the prospect of another lockdown seemed perfectly possible. And I think like many of us, I was numbing some of my feelings with mm. a drink in the evening, which would turn into two drinks in the evening. Uh, and it's the kind of quantity of drinking that is not going to raise any giant red flags, but just was not sitting well with me. I just knew this is more than I've ever drunk mm. in my life before. It's become a habit and I really didn't want to let go of it. I felt as though life was really stressful and the only thing I had to look forward to was unwinding in the evening with a glass or two of wine or gin and tonic. And letting go of that really felt like saying goodbye to my best friend. Just like like my best friend was going to die. That's how bad it felt. Um, and the the problem was that Pam was already blogging about this. Yes. This, this year of not drinking or year of reevaluating her drinking. She was blogging about it. So it was really in my face. And I was having to think about it. And um, at the time, I'd, I just decided, okay, Tonight, I'm, I'm not going to drink at all. And that night turned into another night, another night, another night. I would night. imagine you are one of those people who can say, I'm stopping now, and then you stop. Well, that's what ended up happening, but that wasn't my plan. I didn't think I'm going to stop drinking. I just thought I'm not going to drink tonight, and then nor tomorrow night. And the whole thing ended up feeling kind of good. Like mm. I was meeting my health goals. I was meeting my fitness goals. I was doing things I hadn't been able to do for a couple of years. Um, and, you know, Pam has famously been able to go back in a very moderate way. She mm. reevaluated her drinking and she's gone back to it very moderately, like maybe one drink a week or something like mm. that. And I just haven't felt that urge. Okay, It has felt so good to be completely off the grog that I feel no urge to go back. So you don't even have one social drink? Nothing. Very interesting. Nothing. Oh. Very interesting. It's, yeah, I've, I've got lots of thoughts about this because I'm a very moderate drinker who could very easily stop drinking. Right. But I'm also a vegetarian and I cannot bear the idea of being a vegetarian teetotaler. It is not <laughs> my brand. Virtue. Yeah, it is really <laughs> not my brand. So I have the weird problem that I'm working hard on 
not stopping drinking. Um, okay. Not by mistake stopping drinking. <laughs> it's a battle, but someone's got to get involved. <laughs> anyway, I just want to say that Pam's book is a fantastic read. I really enjoyed it. Um, it It isn't just fun. Mm. It really kind of tears the curtain back, lets you look behind the glitz and glamour of being a TV writer mm. and see some really proper hard struggles um, and to see how medicating it all with booze was really not working for her and how her life improved when she yeah. scaled it back big time. So for anyone who's even just thinking about these issues or for anyone who wants a good read, I would really mm. recommend that. Absolutely. And I found it made me, despite my struggle being to keep drinking, not to stop drinking, <laughs> um, it made me think about, it made me stop and evaluate and think about what are my values around drinking? What are the messages I'm passing on around drinking? Yeah. You know, I think there are a lot of societal questions there that she makes you think about. Absolutely. So what have you got to recommend for us this week? Nothing, because. <laughs> <laughs> so also harking back to our conversation with Pam, you'll remember that we talked about um, that she has started consuming nonfiction because she found fiction too traumatic. And I talked about how I'm reading fantasy because I find fiction tra too traumatic. But I thought I'd got over that. I thought I was able to read in a normal way again. And I was very excited to read Jodie Picot. And now I'm going to be terrible and not remember the other writer's name. Um, but the new book, Jennifer Mad Honey. Finley Boylan. That sounds very almost right. Yeah, I think um, it's almost right. So, um, so I was very excited to read it. People have loved it. And I started reading and it is too real for me. Right. From the opening chapters, you know that somebody has died. And if you know Jodie Picot's writing at all, you know that a teenage boy is going to get accused of a murder. Right. And... I have a teenage son and I just can't engage with that on an emotional level of the idea of being one of the points of views is his mother and I just I try to push myself and I cannot read it. It's too real. And now I'm going to have to read a book about werewolves to get over the shock of it all. <laughs> well, I hope the werewolves do it for you, Gail. <laughs> well, uh, we'll ask our guest today about this, but... Uh, you know, she writes very enjoyable fiction, uh, very page-turning, but it, it goes deep. It really does, and I think we all need to be in a good space to consume that. Our guest today is Yawande Omotoso. Uh, you know her from her three very well-received novels. Bomb Boy came out in 2011. It was originally published by Majaji Books. The Woman Next Door came out in 2016, published by Chatter and Windus, among others, I believe. And then most recently, An Unusual Grief came out in 2022. Um, welcome to the podcast, Yuande. Thank you very much, Fiona. Thank you. Yuande, tell us, how has your writing week been? Well, I, am, I only recently started sort of having a formal writing week again because <laughs> I have I have two year two and a half year old twins. Oh my god. And wow, um, that's hard work. <laughs> when that happened, it's it's wonderful, you know, having these beings in my life. But one of the things or two of the things I keep saying I've lost is 
the opportunity to have long conversations with friends. Yep. And the writing life, the writing life had to recede a little bit in these early years. And then re- and the reading, which is a key part, at least, of my writing life. I know different writers are, di- you know, some writers feel differently and deliberately don't read when they're writing. And what, and earlier this year, I started getting excited because like I suddenly had, suddenly I had the, it's not just time, because of course there's time, but it's the, uh, I don't know, the space, the capacity, the wherewithal to read. I thought, I felt I could, I could read again and I started reading almost voraciously the way maybe I would have read when I was in my teens and mm-hmm. sort of really climbing into reading. It was wonderful. Um, like it was euphoric. And then from the reading, I could get back into my writing project. Um, and which I had been dipping into on a cell phone. We were talking about writing me of all people found that I could only, I could write on the cell phone because if I had two seconds, that was what was nearby. And I could type, I could write in three lines and go back to it later. Or another thing I did as a sort of a, a technique is to do voice recordings of lines that pop up in my head. So I, I just started having a writing life again and feeling like I had this internal inquiry uh, with words and ideas. And then I'd always wanted to write about, I always knew when I finished on Unusual Grief that the next project would probably be... um a little bit more biographical and I started writing about um, my kind of avenue into becoming a mother because it was a bit circuitous um, and I wanted to put it down and so yeah I would say in the last three months or so I can I can say like I've had a writing week <laughs> you know I've had several <laughs> writing weeks let me put it that way and I, I feel like I have a, a process and something's happening um, I I do other work as a storyteller, but I've managed to protect my Fridays to write. Fantastic. Um, and so that's what I do. I, I, I do my other work. Um, and then on Fridays, it, it, Fridays are the, my favorite day in the whole wide world for, for different, for a different reason to everyone else. Cause people love Fridays because it's the beginning of the yeah. weekend. I love Fridays because it's, it's the day from beginning to end that I can read and write and completely immerse myself in, in my project. So, and- so the week's been good. Long answer, but the week's been good. <laughs> That's do you only write on a Friday or do you do bits and pieces all week and then on a Friday you really focus? When I first started, because it's almost like dating again, like meeting someone again. When I first yes. started, it was just, you know, these kind of shy Friday gatherings. And then <laughs> as I got more comfortable in in this um, project – yeah, or any any little chance I had, you know, suddenly then you're texting all the time and phoning them and thinking of them, right? It's a bit like that. Like with the book, I was then constantly, any chance I had, I would read something or check something. I, I would dream something and quickly jot it down in the morning when I woke up. A, a line would show up and I would write it quickly, like on a Wednesday, you know, heresy. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then Friday would arrive and that's the day to really immerse. And some, sometimes it's a day to write um, and I, I write quite free writing. I don't at this stage. I'm not very edit heavy and I'm very generous with myself. So just, I could, I could produce thousands of words in the day because I'm not precious. I'm not saying that they're good words and I'm not okay. saying that I keep them, but I just let it flow. And then there are some times when I think I, it's not right to be actually scribbling today. I need to read to be quiet. I don't read back. I very seldom read back over what I've written until much like yeah. several months time. I'll probably do that. 
So, yeah. Um, I know Fiona's de- desperate to start asking questions and she can see I'm going to get bogged down in your process and just <laughs> overtake because I'm the one obsessed with process. <laughs> I have to know, you said thousands of words in a throwaway voice. We're very interested in this, in this podcast and what you mean by thousands, thousands of words. words. <laughs> How many thousands of words do you produce yeah. on a Friday? No, no, no. Okay. So uh, let me not lie now, but I mean, I, if I'm if I'm in that flow, it has to do with how how quiet I can be with myself and 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 not critical. When I'm when it's too sharp, and I'm like, oh, these these sentences are, then then maybe I'll get five hundred to a thousand words. When the when I allow, I could do two thousand, two five, three thousand because. And everyone has a different way of writing. I do believe, and I remember a writer, um, I think it's Andrew Cohen, talked about how what comes first. Does the idea come out of the writing or does, or does the writing produce the idea? Like, do you get the idea from writing, from the activity of it? Mm. From, so by, by churning out the 3000, I stumble on mm. what's precious and important. And then I take care of that. Or do I have the idea and now I'm just producing it? And for me, it's the first. It's that I, I need to allow a flow to discover what the heck I'm doing. And so that's important for my process to allow myself mm. to just let it go and not, and I'm thinking, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Why does anybody care about whatever the bird in the corner and the, and, and my reading is similar. I then read a lot of books with writers who I feel are permissive. Okay. You know, that they, they, that somehow I get permission from the things I, sh- I choose to read when I'm, when I'm in a, like a writing project, permission to have this interior, to have this inspection of something that allows me to keep producing and, and keep trusting that I'll stumble on that thing. I'm going to come back to that, Fiona. You're not going to stop me unpacking <laughs> that more. I don't care what you say. <laughs> you wonder. Um, I'm busy doing sums in my head, and I figure that if you've got two-and-a-half-year-old twins now, I have a pretty good idea of what your COVID lockdown looked like. Yes. <laughs> you do. <laughs> so we, we're always interested in how different writers handled COVID mm. and handed, handled the lockdown, whether they could write, whether they couldn't. Mm. But if if you had newborn twins, you weren't doing any writing. No. That must have been quite a strange and lonely time for you. Yeah, it was, you know what, it, firstly, it was, a, the main thing is it was a glorious time because right. I, this, I'd wanted this for a long time. And as I said, I had this circuitous journey to it. Um, but I mean, and, and the lockdown, I was whatever, two, three months pregnant with, with the lockdown and alone because my partner was on the other side of the world and couldn't get back. He, oh, and he's not a South African citizen and couldn't get back into the country. So for most of my pregnancy, I was alone. Right. Um, and then um, he actually arrived the day before the the, the, the twins were born, <laughs> or the night, the morning of very dramatic. Wow, good time. And then and then you know so so that was finally, but um, I, it was very solitary. The pregnancy was incredibly solitary and and singular because I think there's also something of sort of being pregnant in community, um, but being a solitary, you know, soul, uh, it wasn't you know it wasn't lonely. In that sense, it was, but it was, um, it was solitary. It was very much just my experience. Um, and maybe that's also why I want to write a bit about it to share. 
Um, and then when the, and then when the, when the kids came as well, it was still very much a COVID time. And, um, but there was just the joy of, you know, these new lives and joy. I mean, the insanity of trying to take care of two babies at the same time as well. Um, anyway, I, you know, and I, I won't go back there. I'll tell you that two and a half. It's wonderful, you know, but it, it's, it's hard. It was hard. It's, but it's it so hard. hard. Two and a half is yeah, hard because it, they can move. Yeah. Oh boy, can they move. <laughs> but there's something, I don't know. There's, um, you, you know, you mustn't wish away any portion of. Yes you know these lives but um it just feels like it, it it does feel like it's getting easier um fiona should we tell her about teenagers oh dear i was go- i was going to say i'm trying to think of a way to say i i'm not simpler because yeah. because it it's it's still it's super complex and now they're older and they also there's a lot of competition a lot, you know because you have two you're constantly dealing with these two beings and they're so, and those are, you know, those are things I wouldn't necessarily have had to deal with, but I, I feel I can somehow handle that better than the, the labor of, of, um, feeding, caring for uh, the detail that's mm. required when they're so young. Um, yes. of course it, of course it doesn't get easier, really, does it? You don't have, you don't even have to tell me, you know, just, just wink, just, you know. <laughs> the challenges change. They do, they do. They say the days are long and the years are short. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's very yeah. true. And you've 100%. got a 20 year old, you realize that how wow. true that is. Wow. Um, okay. So let's talk about your first book, Bomb Boy. Mm. And I'm particularly interested in the theme of adoption mm. because it's something that I've researched and written about quite yeah. a lot. Um, now your character, I, I want to get the pronunciation of his first name right. Lecky. Lecky. Um, Lecky Denton is, uh, a tragic figure in a way. When I think of him, I kind of want to burst into tears. But, um, <laughs> Lecky is a, a black boy who has been adopted by these white parents mm. and he is, supposed to call them mom and dad or mother and father or whatever but it's clear that he thinks of them as Jane and Marcus Mm, mm. they are these people who are in his life for Mm, a while mm. and it's not in any way the sort of rescue fantasy of adoption that I think some white families have Mm. Um, what inspired that storyline and and what research did you do for it yeah I am it's so interesting to talk about Bomboy, I must say, because I haven't in a long time. So thank you for, for, you know, just bringing it up in that way. And part of what inspired that, Bomboy was actually my thesis. I was um, doing a creative writing master's at UCT. Right. And I was looking, as I said, my process is looking for what to write by writing. And so the first thing I stumbled on, like when I say finding some something that feels like I can set it aside and take care of it was this idea of a, a figure. It was always a kind of a boy, male figure, um, deeply set aside, like from society, almost like a pariah, or, um, stuck, um, socially inept, you know, but in a way that's quite dark. And, um, as I started to take care of that, kernel of of that could be a story and understood what some of his what his story was and where he came from the idea of parents as a kind of a fertile ground for a child and that he had lacked that for whatever reason um and it had a different sort of 
experience of care. Um, his parents are not evil, the, the, the couple who take care of him, but something is missing at the center of him. And it's tied yes. into like his story and his, the complexity around his parents and his biological parents. So that, that was just then became the story that I tried to tease apart. Um, I, I ended up in a way writing about, um, I guess identity, but, but really what I didn't know it was identity. What I wanted to write about was what it felt like for me to come to South Africa as a 12 year old right. in 1992, to be in school, to feel set apart, to feel, um, to feel, uh, dark, literally. <laughs> and, but also just inside a heaviness, um, and to trans, and to try and write about those feelings, but in a, in a fictitious character called Leki. Um, and research wise, I mean, I did so much. I did a, a lot of different uh, pieces of research in terms of the adoption. To be honest, I didn't like go. I'm trying to remember now because it was so long ago <laughs> as well. But I, I think I would have spoken to a few people. Um, I would have tried to get a sense for myself of, of just, just trying to sort of connect to what that experience might be. Um, I think I made up a lot of stuff. In terms of research, the, the research I remember doing actually for the story was less about adoption and more about pathology. Because I, the, in very early versions of that book, Leke is actually on the brink of, of, of being a menace in society. Um, he's on the brink of, um, in the book, he steals things, but in, I, I wrote versions where he steals people and, oh, and okay. does things. And, okay, I, I, and it was such, it felt um, like a bit of a delicate stretch. And, and so I did a lot of careful research about that. And I remember reading a book about whatever, a book this thick about South Africa's serial killers. And, you know, I, I want, Fun. yeah, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I dialed that back a lot. I felt like I couldn't do it without it feeling salacious or, you know, and I've, I've, that's always, and I don't prescribe that or say like, you know, you know, you should be bogged down by ethics as a writer, but just my own personal mm -hmm. kind of thing, um, compass. I couldn't manage to pull it off somehow. So I, I and, and also, and then I thought sometimes when that's the case, it's because the character is saying, that ain't me, right. <laughs> you know, yes, and I get yes, that a lot yes. with, I remember getting it with Mochi Salana with the last book. Where I wanted to turn her into a flaming, you know, dominatrix. And she was like, mm -hmm, Oh, wow. That ain't me, baby. You know, that, that's another book. You go write that somewhere else. That's not my story. Right. So, yeah. You've talked about two biographical facts in telling us about that. You've talked about coming to South Africa when you were 12. You've talked about doing a thesis. Uh, talk us through your journey to writing. Mm. And, and when one Googles you, it, it always starts with born in Barbados. Yes. So tell us about that journey as a person from Barbados yeah. to South Africa and also I believe you're an architect as yes, well so yes, where yes. how did you come to write where did that fit in yes <laughs> the Barbados part you know my mom my mom who's pastor who's dead uh is Bayesian she's a Barbadian and I was born in and I was born in Barbados and I think it it's it does feel like 
particularly in honoring her, it feels like an important part of my, my story. So I'm, I'm very happy that that's what shows up first. Um, and you've used it in your fiction, that connection. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> because I feel formed by it. You know, yeah. talking of lockdown, when I fell pregnant, one of the things I thought it'd be so hard to take my kids to Barbados once they're born because it's far. <laughs> and, you know, so, so I took them when they were inside me. That was the cheapest way. So when everybody was thinking lockdown, I was like flying across, <laughs> across the seas to take the boys to, to the Barbadian waters, you know, yeah. and be a bit with my, my family there, my mom's family. And I'm imagining in the future you're going, what do you mean you've never been? I took you when you were inside uh, exactly. me. Stop exactly. complaining. <laughs> but it really was that. And, and then I had to rush back because they were closing the borders and I had to cut my trip short. But I risked a lot of things. And, you know, it was really when Heathrow, I had to cross two airports in London and, and the airports were just these cemeteries, you know, uh, very eerie. But um, but that's, you know, how important um, that connection is to me. Um, I I mean, I think writing... I feel very lucky. I think I, I grew up in a family, a community and a town where art, literature, the, the making of things was valued, you know, and regarded. I grew up on, um, in Ileife in Nigeria, um, on the, on a university campus, the OAU campus. <clears throat> and my father was a lecturer there and my mother worked on the campus. And I grew up with other children in this kind of university community, um, and reading and writing and making stuff up and doing plays and watching plays was never far away or foreign. Um, so it feels as if that was just presented to me as part of what it is to be alive, is to imagine stuff and, and experience the things other people have imagined. Um, so, and that I, I'm, I feel lucky about that because I know that's not, you know, everyone's experience and, it's not the only way to come to writing and being creative, but it, it certainly was the way I did. Um, I'm the youngest of three children. I have two older brothers, and my brothers were also really creative. My oldest brother, who's a filmmaker, um, you know, just just gathered all the kids always and set us to do certain projects. We 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 had you know community magazines that we wrote and photographed for. We had little plays we performed and. That was what it was like to grow up. So I would say it was just common and in the air. My father himself is a writer and a, and a playwright. Um, and then I think the, the question for me is when did it, because it was like, when did it become something I wanted to pursue? Um, and that was much later because if something's the water you swim in, you know, mm. it doesn't occur as distinct. Yes. When did I distinguish it as like, something to do versus just that what's done regularly, like brushing teeth. Um, that was later, as you say, I, when I finished school, we came to South Africa in 1992 and we came because, um, well, my parents came and brought us with them because of some of the, um, upheaval in Nigeria at the time. Um, my father being a writer had written several things that you know did not were not well met by the government at the time and it was a military dictatorship so we came here you know um as a my father made a very deliberate choice to stay in africa and not sort of go to the states or go to the uk or or europe and i also appreciate that sort of um decision that he made 
And so we came here, came to South Africa, came to Cape Town where he taught and we schooled and learnt and grew. When I, when I wanted to study something and said it needs to be English, I was probably about 17 because I want to be a writer. You know, my dad was like, I don't think that's a very good idea. <laughs> you know, it's not, um, the same, same typical thing that parents that would tell children. So interesting. That's so parallel to my experience. That's oh, really? Yeah. yeah it's just, yeah, not a good idea. So that's how I studied, um, architecture. Because my teachers were like, okay, it's creative, but it's a bit of science. It's a bit more solid than, you know, an English degree. So I was kind of, <laughs> you know, sort of pushed into doing something like that. Um, didn't like it for a long time and didn't do particularly well and struggled, you know, but eventually met the right teachers. My, my mom also died uh, during my studies. Um, I was uh, 20, how old was I? Goodness. 23. And um, that also, and my mother was an urban designer. So in a way we were in similar fields as an architect, but um, I pushed through and I, I did, I eventually graduated. I, I mean, today I love architecture. I am grateful for my architectural training. I feel like I write as an architect. Um, I loved uh, Arundhati Roy, whom is a huge hero of mine, um, not least because she's an architect. She said that, that, for her writing is her architectural practice. And I, I really liked that, that she, you know, and I've stolen that many times. And I, I think it's also true. Um, so, so it was architecting and living that life and still knowing this is not my heart that I decided to do the master's part-time while I was working. So I did, I did the creative writing many years into, into being an architect, a young architect. And once I wrote Bomboy and people kind of liked it or a few people said nice things, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to do another one <laughs> and, and keep going until, you know, until it doesn't make any sense. And I guess that was whatever, almost 20 years ago. And do you still work as an architect or do you? Until, um, I mean, I'll say I haven't, I haven't worked as an architect for, hmm, not quite a decade, maybe a bit less than that. Um, I worked for companies. And then I had my own practice for a very short while with two other women. And then we closed the practice. My partners were kind of had young families. I was pushing my second novel and wanting to promote it. And I just decided to, you know, what they say, quit, quit my day job, which mm. they tell you not to do. But I, I told my dad, I'm going to quit my day job. And I want to just give this a year, you know, and if at the end of the year, um, I told him, I don't need your money, but I need your roof. So I, I moved cities to, to live where he lived in, in Joburg. And um, I told him if at the end of the year, I haven't managed to just work it out, um, I will, I'll go back to sli slightly more formal employment. So I hustled, you know, I hustled as a writer. There's the books, but then I taught, I pushed for fellowships. I applied to things and just hustled to work, you know, to be, have some independence. Bomboy is a very accomplished novel, Thank you. Um, not least because it's a, a debut novel. Mm -hmm. And it manages to miss all the sort of errors that first-time authors make. Uh, for example, info dumping at the beginning of the book or just revealing too much about the characters and their backstory at the beginning of the book. It really weaves the backstory mm -hmm. delicately through the whole novel, which is something you've done in your other novels as well. Mm -hmm. And seems like a book written by a far more experienced writer. Oh, wow. 
Is that a function of the the MA that you were doing? Was that influenced from your supervisor or was it something that you were doing naturally yourself? Thanks for that. And yeah, this is a a good time to shout out to um, Joanne Hitchens, who was my supervisor. Oh, all right. Um, and um, no, I mean, I think, I think, I think it's many things. You know, I think that it's definitely that attention. I mean, I've I've never, as uh, I, I think, let me go back and do another master's. Like the kind of attention you receive from someone dedicated to reading your work and supporting you through the process. At least the way Joanne did it, I guess not all supervisors do it that way, but um was incredibly helpful. And um because I was learning, I didn't I didn't know I didn't know I didn't know. You really don't know. How do you put a book together? How does it end up being a book? Um the MA I I found the community of the MA I found really um profound actually and 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 have memories that that stay with me and friendships that sort of sprouted then um so i i definitely would would credit those things for sure um and then in terms of i mean i and reading maybe you know mm-hmm. and and many like it's reading and the things that i've loved and the kind of the tone and styles that i like and the writing i read has that grading that you're talking about, you know, um, so that you don't get a sense of the mechanics, you know, when you're reading the thing. Mm. Um, so maybe also just from what I've read and like what has kind of honed my own, um, voice, I suppose is what we're talking about. Yeah. It's, it's tempting, especially when you are, you're aware that you're writing for publication to sort of cram all the best stuff in the first three chapters or the, mm. the first how many thousand words, because mm. you know, a publisher is going to want to look at that. Yeah. So you want to wow them with the good stuff at the beginning. Yeah. And very often your books contain major reveals and major developments, um, after the first half of the book. Yeah. There's that kind of, delay in yeah. the book which i think is is quite a bold move maybe and a that's an innocence <laughs> maybe that's like a, a or naivete if i'm being less kind because i, I get, so firstly with the by the way with the with the with the masters i mean i had no idea about publication right you know all i knew was i was writing a thesis of course i wanted to do something brilliant mm-hmm. just because i'm ambitious but i didn't i wasn't thinking this would be published necessarily and i get maybe that's also you know, because it can be distracting that, that thing of, oh, oh, but this is, it can distract from what is the real project? Uh, um, which is, this is an argument I have with myself because of course I'd love a project to make money. Yes. One day, you know, can you please do something to make money? But I'm mostly, it seems obsessed and captivated with being concerned with the, the, the project, the, the heart project, like the story project. What's a, what's a good story? Um, it might not be shiny, shiny, right? It might yeah. not, it's, it's not those things that, but it's, it, it pays off at the end, you know, and I think of what I read. It's the things that, that give you back, like when you, when you walk that journey with the author or with the character and you get, you get, you, you get the reward of that, but it, it's not, it's not instant. I mean, and that's reading, right? It's, it isn't, it isn't the other forms of things that we consume. It's a very particular kind of activity 
that has patience and that is paced and graded, that appeals to me, you know, but it, I don't, you know, maybe that's why you know, the books take a while because all the publishers reject it because the first five pages are the one who, the few who read the whole thing are, ah, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll publish that. <laughs> I'm interested in what you're saying and c- connecting it back to what you said before about versions because mm. you talked about writing several versions, mm. which gave me a slight feeling of panic because I'm a very lazy writer okay. and the idea of writing several versions of a book makes me feel slightly nauseous um is that what you're looking for when when you repeat when you're writing different versions are you looking for that pace that payoff Mm. what what are you doing when you're writing different versions because for me it feels like maybe you should have written 10 books instead of 10 (laughs) versions maybe you're right and by the way the books are on my phone i should go into my computer they're there all the versions are there no you know what it is and this is a nice one with architecture because one of the things you do in architecture is you keep you you have your basic idea and then you put your tracing paper, whatever your bump paper over it and you you pull out the essence. So you trace over the images underneath, right. your clean papers above, and you can see and you just take what makes sense, right? You pull out the essence and then you do it again and you do that 500 times. As you get what's the essence of this thing, right? And then and then you build that, you develop that, you, you put the doors and the windows in and the floors and so on. And I feel like that's something I feel I do in writing. I feel when I'm doing those versions, that's what I'm doing. I'm like, okay, okay. So that's that first drawing. Yes. Let's put the bump over. This is now another version. Let's see. We don't need the bits with the that. We ah, this really pulls, this is strong, this one. I'm going to pick that to focus on. This, this is shaping up. Let's put another layer. Ah, this is what it really is. That's what I'm doing. I'm talking to myself in yeah. a way. I'm talking to myself and my writer self. And I'm like, is this what you were trying to do? Okay, okay. So if that's what you're trying to do, all of that's not important, but let's stick on this. And, ah, you forgot that thing. Let's bring that back up. That thing that was actually working. Let's bring it. You know, that's what I'm doing. It's t- it's complex. I mean, I don't recommend it for anybody else, but that's kind of how I'm working. You make it sound delicious. You make me want to go and start doing that. I'm but it is delicious. It. I like that. Because you're, but the, it, the, it's delicious because you're, you are, you are talking, you're, you're in a project, you're immersed and you're, you're in this dialogue with four of you and you're arguing and then your character pops up and says, listen, uh-huh. I'm not going to be a dominatrix. I'm not going to be a dominatrix. (laughs) So just remember that. It is delicious in that way. It's like you disappear into your own world Mm. for the duration of of the work or you dip in every Friday. Um, (laughs) And I don't know, it it feeds me. I guess delicious is the right word. I I find it feeds me and that's why I want to write. Mm. That's why I want to write. Not because I remember doing a, a fellowship I won't name anything because then I don't want to badmouth anybody. But the, the gentleman, very kind, who was supervising me, I said, oh, go away, outline your novel. Uh, it was actually, um, which book was it? I can't remember. Outline your novel and come back. And, and so I went and I outlined my novel and I was depressed. I was depressed for about two, three weeks before I realized it's because I outlined my novel. That's yeah. why I'm depressed. Yes. I can't work that way. I don't want to know what's going to happen. How banal. I mean, who wants to write a book that you know how it's going to end? I want to be immersed in a, in a, in a creative dance with myself and the world and the things I see. And I want to make stuff up and play and get it wrong. And, 
and then it, but at the end emerge with something kind of whole and beautiful and then shape it carefully with the, with the editor's eyes on mm. but i can't put those eyes in in the beginning mm. i lose mm. what's delicious about writing that that so i don't outline so interesting i don't outline i can't um your first novel bomb boy won the south african literary award the the first time author prize and you've been nominated for the international Dublin Literary Award, uh, long-listed for the Bailey Prize, and I'm not even naming all of the um, awards that your books have been nominated for. Is there a pressure that comes with being a long-listed and short-listed and award-winning writer? Do you sit down with any kind of sense of, I need to live up to this, um, there's pressure on me, there are expectations on me, whereas when you're starting out for the first time, there's no pressure, there's no expectations except what you're putting on yourself. I don't dare buy into any of that pressure if it exists because right. it will kill my work. Mm-hmm. And the work is what matters. The prizes are obviously wonderful and they're so encouraging and, you know, if you can win a couple, woo, the money's great. <laughs> yes. But... But that's not what matters. That can't be what matters. It can't be the tail wagging the dog. Like the work is what matters. And I, one of my fears is actually the ways in which sometimes prizes and acclaim make w- work worse. <laughs> right. <laughs> because it's like my brother always says, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Like don't, you can't buy into hype. You can't buy into your own, Oh, you know, I'm a good writer. That is not where good work comes from. The, the certainty in your abilities. Doubt. I love doubt. I cultivate doubt. I love that I'm doubtful. I love that I don't know stuff. I love that I don't think I'm good and nobody cares what I have to say. My right. And it's not a suffering doubt. It's not like, Oh my God. (laughs) It's a very productive doubt. It's just a, the world's a puzzle. It's a mystery. I don't know these things. You know, there's so many brilliant writers out there. I'm okay, I guess, but I've got to keep going. It's, it's not a suffering kind of doubt. It's very permissive again. Um, so that, that's incredibly important to me. And, and I, I always, um, mention, uh, Nuruddin Farah, um, who's an incredible writer, prolific. And he said something once in a talk where he said, each time, and when I say put like 20 pieces, like he's done short stories, 20 novels, he's like all over the place. And he says each time he sits down to write, he realizes he doesn't know how to write. Right. And I remember hearing that and thinking, that's what I'm going to use. Like, I don't know how to write. And that's productive. When you sit down and think, I'm the bee's knees. Yes. That's not a good writing day for me. Nothing comes. I'm, I'm paralyzed. As you say, I, I have to humble to the project. Stories win. Story wins. Yewande doesn't win. <laughs> you know, story wins at the end. Not not me as an individual. Storytelling and creativity. That's where the magic is. Not in me. Not in my ego. Ego gets in the way. I for me. I always sort of underline for me. I mean, you know, everyone's different. I love the idea of productive dot. <laughs> I'm gonna hold on to that nugget. I've written it down. <laughs> 
Um, I think if I let Fiona, she's going to talk about your first book for the whole time we have with you. So I want to move on to your second book, The Woman Next Door, which I loved, which is what introduced me to your writing. I'm not sure why. I don't know where I was, what, (laughs) what rock I was stuck under that I, that I didn't start at the beginning. Um, but The Woman Next Door, I always feel like, like that did explode you more into mainstream readership. Um, and, and I think, I think for me it was partly because in a way the book lived out the fantasy we all have of the Rainbow Nation mm. and the fantasy we all had of how friendship would be easy across across the races and it would just all be wonderful and happy at the end. <laughs> Talk to us about where that book came from. Yeah, thank you. Um, so the, the woman next, again, it came from... I always come from character, so it didn't actually come from the themes that you're mentioning, although that came in later as I developed the characters. But I, it really came from, I was spending a lot of time with my grandmother, my mom's mom now, who outlived her daughter um, and in Barbados. And um, I was spending time with people that had, had lived a long time and were at the end of their lives with m- more life behind them than ahead. And I was just struck by the, quality of this kind of figure this kind of person and what does that mean um and then i i was struck somebody told me they used to call my grandma the general she's so kind of sweet i mean she's passed away but she's so sort of sweet and gentle and i thought the general, she's like, yeah yeah she's tough and my grandmother once she was you know she was holding this this <laughs> pan of oil and she she said to me you know about her temper she would there's a time in her life when she would splash this in someone's face. Wow. That's how her temper could be. And I was like, wow, how amazing to like be this woman now and have that Mm. behind her. I have no access to that. And Hortensia was forming like this, this woman who's, who can have fury, who's mean spirited and, you know, who's hard. Um, yeah, I feel like Hortensia does still have access to that yes, yes, angry does. woman. And I'm going to say, I feel like it was just menopause. <laughs> actually, yes. you can all, we could all throw a thing of hot oil <laughs> exactly. at this stage. But also, but, and, and like to, to look at that, right? To, to look at that experience of, of women, um, and to spend time on that experience, that anger that we'd have nowhere else to throw, to put, because society doesn't have any room or any place for an angry woman, mm-hmm. right? Um, a woman who's older, you may as well disappear they, 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 and be unseen. And so I don't know, those things started coming up for me, but it was Hortensia really and that, that, that started it. It was like, yes. And then, okay, where is she and who's she with and why is she there and where is she from? And, and then the story starts to take shape in that way. And it's interesting because you were young when you wrote this. You you weren't in that life phase. No, no, no. Still not eighty five. Still not eighty five. But 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 I mean, I was I was thinking that because the 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 gap between me and my gran. I mean, I'm sort of in my forties now. But the the gap between my gran and I at the time felt quite profound. You know, in a way. Now that I'm a mom as well, that gap feels a little closer because she's a mom. And but I wasn't. I was far from being a mother. And um, I was just fascinated by by who this woman was and I wanted to talk about her bitterness and like why was she so bitter and um and then I wanted to ask questions like you're saying you know uh, Gail like is it too late to try and have that friendship um it's one thing to have that project that kind of rainbow project with you know young youthful minds but how do we apply it to 
folk that are so set mm. um, and that have so much behind them, so much different evidence to what this project says is possible, this mm. sort of friendship project. Um, I wanted to look at it <clears throat> with with them with a sense of irony. <clears throat> somebody talk, somebody said that you know I, I made it too easy, but I really thought I could look at. I felt like I was looking at it. Um, not saying that it's possible and that the ending is can be happy clappy, but that it's it's hard and almost you'll just never know whether you've mm. got it or not. Mm. There's no sense of security in that. Yes, tick. Yeah, we we did that. You just never know, so you have to keep tending to it and tending to it and tending to it because it's not certain. Again, this doubt thing. So so that's kind of how it it started forming. You inhabit the characters of Hortensia and also the white conservative woman, Marion, in a very um, personal, intimate way. Mm. And you give them both a voice and you give us access to their thoughts and their personalities mm. and their backstories. Um, did you ever get the sense, and I think it was something that I saw fleetingly on Twitter at the time that the book came out, that people were thinking – um, that Marion almost didn't deserve a voice, that she didn't deserve such a delicate personal mm. treatment that you gave her, mm. that she was really just beyond the pale. We didn't need to know, you know, her great motivations yeah. or um, you didn't need to inhabit her that closely, that Hortensia was maybe a more worthy character than Marion. Was that a criticism you were aware of or is it something that you would want to respond to? I mean, I think... Um I'm I'm thinking back and I think you're right. People saying, Oh, you know, um people saying, Oh, she's awful and things like that. And yeah. and you know, I always found that flippant. Um the the point I guess of, of for me with, with with this work is these aren't puppets in a show that I'm making. I mean, and I guess at some in some way they are, but I I in a very deep almost um um magical way i do, i don't see the work in that way i do, you know marian is not there for me to fiddle you know and say well you're that kind of person so you just be quiet and all you have to represent is this evil kind of white woman because i don't think that's true you know small t true but i don't think that's true and i think my what i wanted to do i couldn't have written it without writing her you know right. and then um, right. I've always been, yes, there's that critique, but I'm always so gratified when people come up to me, different people. I mean, some, and sure, some people that look like Marion, quite frankly, come up and say, they're not even complimenting me. They're kind of pained, but they're kind of saying, I, I recognized her, you know, and then they go away. Those are the kind of things <laughs> yeah. like, and that, that for me is like, that's enough. If one person said yeah. that, that's enough. Because because the point the point was not to like villainize, the point was to try and experiment to see if you can get to where the heart beats with with this person, with all of them. Quite frankly, I'm interested in. We've talked about it before on this podcast. Um, when you wrote the woman next door, this hadn't become a big conversation, but now the conversation about are we allowed to write in each other's voices is a big one. And certainly as a white writer, mm. you you would have to be very brave and possibly a bit stupid <laughs> to write with a black voice because it's not your right. You, it's not your lived experience. And we do have this drummed into us. Do you think if you were writing it now, you'd come to it more tentatively or 
or it's there and it deserves I, to be written. And Gail, please go and write that voice. Like, like I just think, and this might not be popular, but I, I don't subscribe to that. It's not your voice. Yes. <laughs> I know it's not. And the, the re- let me put it, it's not that I don't. I can't. And the reason I can't is because how do we have a, have a creative project, a project that's about boundlessness mm. and impose the, you can put the binds on yourself. I have binds on myself. Mm. I struggle actually uh, to write uh, black South African characters. I put that bind. I put that bind because I feel ill-equipped because I don't speak Isikosa, Isizulu. I don't speak the languages that I think these characters would have as a first language. Mm. I could write someone that was maybe in exile and just didn't learn the language. I could write someone. I could. I would sooner write uh, an Afrikaans-speaking character because I had to study and pass Afrikaans to get into university <laughs> in this, you know, bizarre country of ours. I didn't have to do that with any of the black languages at yes. the time when I was studying. I would sooner write that character. So my thing is less race and more language. And I don't know, I, I, I didn't, I don't want that, by the way. I don't yeah. want that impingement. It just happens to be what I got. I have this, like this bind and I'm working on my bind and I'm trying to <laughs> get free of my bind. That's my bind. I can't say to you, Gail, you're not allowed. And we're talking about a creative project. Yeah. It's not my place. Now, you go and do that and come back and give me the book. And if I read it and think, mm, Gail, let's talk. Like, you're a bit sideways wow. here and this is problematical. But that's the point of writing. Yeah. For you to say to me, oh, you only did that thing you wrote. Oh, I thought that was interesting, but this was a bit of color. What do you think that's about? That's part of the point of this work that we put out in the world to initiate discussion and debate and even anger and, you know, but but for me to tell you not to do it, how? What does that mean for for creativity? Yeah, and going back to all the voices we make up, we make up anyway. You know, we're imagining yeah. ourselves into other people's yeah. lives from the yeah. beginning of the process. Yeah, my thing is do it well, mm. right? <laughs> you know, do, do do anything you want, but you know, be in service of excellence. Do it well, or do it to the best of your ability. And then put it on the table and let's chat. But the, the pre thing and, and I, and I, I still, I, I, I need to say I have compassion for where that comes from though. I remember doing some research uh, when this was coming up, all the kind of the appropriation and there was a discussion. I can't remember the artist's name, but there was a white American woman who was painting certain kinds of images, ba- like sort of inspired by Emmett Till. Emmett Till's dead body right. uh, after he was taken off the tree and um, of course this is we're, 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 we're touching on such deep deep wounds mm. when we do that but I also don't you know don't go and write the, the, the black voice and be polite that's mm. not going to be anything I want to read you know so, so but this is why I'm saying I don't know what to say to you except to, to say be you know, be in service of excellence. If you can be in service of excellence as you try and do this thing, you'll do your best and then you'll bring it to me or whoever and you'll say, here's what I made. And we'll say, we might say bravo because we might see something we couldn't have seen. 
You know, um, just that, Fiona, just be in service. <laughs> That's all. It's very simple. Just be excellent at everything. No, no but it's a difference. No, but Gail, there's a difference. Being excellent and being in service of excellence. You see what I mean? Mm, there's yeah. a difference. Being excellent, I don't know, that's probably, but if you can always be in service of excellence. That means you'll always, whatever that thing you have to walk with as you do your work with that voice, your, or whatever story, you will be tempered and have this compass, you know. That's all I can say. But I can't say don't, don't go and write that, Fiona. I mean, Gail, you, or Fiona, you, or Fiona <laughs> you know, you're a white woman. Don't you dare write this black woman. How can we, how can we have those kind of conversations? Not, not before, after, after we talk about it. <laughs> this is I also, another, sorry, I'm talking yes. long, but I also wanted to say researching, maybe this is the service of excellence in writing Marian. I mean, I, I, and I'm not a big, re- you say you're a lazy writer. I'm a lazy researcher. I don't have to research a bunch Me of too. stuff, but I mean, I, I spent so much time in museums, museums around Jewish history. I, connected with friends of mine I sat I must I don't know how many in that age range like in their 80s Jewish women I sat with I asked to have tea with them to sit with them to ask them about their stories and to be with them and experience them and you know I did a lot of that kind of work Um, I am connected with an old age home in Cape Town I was living in Cape Town at the time Jewish old age home Um, that's the kind of so that not to be um not to be kind of bulletproof in my attempts but to look for what to guide me as i make someone up you know and i think that's the trying to be in service of excellence whether it it works out or not it's like okay these are some of the things i'm going to do which i think we should do anyway we shouldn't assume as you say that we can just make up the other folk whoever we're making up it's not ourselves mm. Even when you write about ourselves, it's invented. Uh, this is another question about writing in different voices. You mainly choose to write in a very close and intimate third person. Is first person something that you've considered doing? Why have you stayed away from it? I find it really hard. I've tried. <clears throat> so I've, tr- I've tried many times. And I, I mean, I'm working on something now and it isn't first person. Ah. And it's be- it was so hard to get into it. I feel I'm into it now, but I worry. I, I find first person difficult somehow. Um, in short stories, I can kind of pull it off, but novel length, I've struggled a lot with it. So I think for some reason, I just sort of um, went to close third. I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> I find first person easy for a novel and third really? person easy for, for a, a short, short story. story. <laughs> and I ch- I'm now challenging myself by writing more in third person. Okay. And you, Fiona? Um, I think... I'm mainly drawn towards third just mm. because of the flexibility of being able to occupy different characters yeah. from a sort of close perspective. Um, I find writing in first person quite restrictive. You're in one person's head the yeah. entire time yeah. and you'd better like that person and enjoy <laughs> writing in their voice because you stuck with it for 80,000 <laughs> words. Um, so I'd, I've done it with my Trinity books and I find it easy to slip into that voice, that particular voice. But otherwise, third is more comfortable mm. for me. Mm-hmm. Moving on to your third novel, An Unusual Grief. There's so many themes that one can parse out of that mm. book, and it's almost difficult to know which one I, I want you to focus on yeah. now. Um, I think possibly the unknowability of others. Mm. 
This is a book about a mother, Mojisola, um, who has moved to Johannesburg to find out what happened to her daughter, the 24-year-old Yinka. And it's not a spoiler to say that Yinka has taken her own life. Um, and Mojisola is on a grief journey and trying to connect with this daughter that she had not had much contact with um, most recently um, and trying to deal with her own grief. Mm. And I think what we left with at the end is a sense that you can get close to another person and what they were thinking and feeling. Um, you can approach it. You can sort of dance together. Mm. But there's an essential unknowability mm. of the other. Mm. You will never completely understand the other. No. Um, is that a, a theme you're interested in? Yeah, I mean, I think that's so, um, there's something kind of, um, tantalizing about that because this idea of connection and being with others and also holding the knowledge that that is, it's, it's limited, that that is such a limited experience. Um, I, I, I liked the idea, uh, there's a book called Snoop. Um, it's, uh, it's like a nonfiction book came out several years ago and it's about a project where you go into a person's home mm. and then you try and understand who they are based on what you find. Ooh. And I remember reading that a long time ago, disconnected to the novel. And I think my brother recommended it and just finding that fascinating. Mm. Also, maybe being an architect, but this idea of what's left behind and what it says and also about ourselves, like, mm you know, when I'm sort of expunged and, and <laughs> what's left and then what would people make of what's left? Mm. There's a, the, the mystery of that, I mm. think is, so this idea of unknowability is the mystery of it that I found compelling that I wanted to kind of explore. And it's the person's physical life, the artifacts of their life, but also their digital life, yes. their online life. And can you inhabit that life? Can you become that person? Can you understand them by trying to move into the digital space? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 cryptic, because I think we, it, it's I don't know. It's just this question you ask yourself: if if you took yourself out of the equation and left your, I don't know, your Facebook page and your and somebody had to work things out in your absence, um, what would they work out? You know, there's something for me. It's it's scary, but it's it's like you. It's like the horror movie. You just have to watch till the end because there's, there's just something. Um, and maybe it has to do with how we exist today and that so much of us is digital. Um, so, so, so I, yeah, I wanted to sort of look at that a bit. Um, then I think we can move on to our last question that we like to ask mm. all our guests. Yes. Um, which is this. <clears throat> what narratives have you been consuming lately, either what you've been watching or what you've been reading or what you've been listening to? that has spoken to you in some way. It might have irritated you. It might have enchanted you, might have inspired you. Yeah. What have um, you been consuming? Yes, gosh, I've been, so a lot of what I've been at least reading has been directed towards the writing. So I've been reading, I've been like really desperate to just find stuff that can help me in what I'm trying to do. I'm working currently on what what is an autofictional work. Um, I didn't, I tried to do memoir and I just, it just sounded so damn earnest and I thought I can't, I can't, I couldn't, you know, survive 80,000 words of that. So I've made it autofictional so that I can play with it a bit and have more freedom. 
And I wanted to read other writers that are doing similar things. Somebody, rec- oh, I stumbled on um, early early days. Someone had recommended Louise. I know pronounce her name. Louise Erdich Erdich. Um, uh, I know who she is. Yes, yes, she's yes. a Native American writer, actually, and she's very prolific. So I read. Um, I'm reading now her novel Love Medicine, which is one of her earlier books, but I read her more recent novel called The Sentence, which is she's a bookshop owner herself. And the story is set in a bookshop pretty much like hers. And she's a kind of a side character in the story. Um, and it's a ghost story. The bookshop is haunted. Um, but it's, it's also a lot of political commentary and it's like an essay, like a long essay. So it kind of feels like fiction, but not. And I really enjoyed that. Um, and so. I read, I read the sentence recently. I've been, I've been reading. Um, I then, I always remember that, um, Sebold, W.G. Sebold writes mm-hmm. a bit in that way. So I went back to read pieces of, um, Rings of Saturn. I mean, very dense. I don't necessarily want to write in that same dense way, but I wanted to understand. It's almost a mechanical reading. I want to understand how do they, how do they find an allowance to write that way? in a novel like what does he do what's he doing what what steps is he taking to find to 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 explore so Teju Cole also does it um and he talks a lot about Sybil but Teju Cole does it in Open City for instance yes. like I want that like that's the kind of novel I'm trying to write this kind of wandering novel and a, a um, an essay novel almost but just with a bit of my life in it um so I'm reading Sybil I'm reading Austerlitz which is another one of his um I read, I recently reread, uh, Tissi Dangaremba's, um, I think except one of her, <clears throat> of her novels ending with, um, this monomal body. So I've been, I mean, like I said, I've now just gone crazy because I'm a reader again and I'm, <laughs> I'm <like> consuming <laughs> as much as I can and, and ex- like just, yeah, ecstatic that I can, you know, that I have that seem to have the time and the mental space for it. Well, that's fantastic. And we can't wait to read Thank your you. new novel. Thank you. So excited. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I want everybody to look for Bomboy and The Woman Next Door and most recently An Unusual Grief, which is a wonderful novel that I read recently and really enjoyed. Thank you so much for your time, you wonder. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you, Fiona. Thank you, Gail. Gail, that was amazing. I am so inspired by you one day. I cannot wait to get writing. I'm inspired by her. I feel like I've fallen a little bit in love with her. Yes. And also a little bit petrified because <laughs> her inspiration comes with so much. You need to be excellent. And so I, I, I'm confused, but very, very, I feel like I filled up the tank well with that interview. Yeah, she really raises the bar of what one expects from oneself as a absolutely, writer. Absolutely, absolutely. What specifics did you take out of it? Well, I was fascinated by her talking about approaching writing as an architect, mm. sort of creating draft after draft after draft, almost like a palimpsest, like looking through tracing paper, rubbing against the tracing paper mm. and see what rises to the fore. And maybe something that you'd abandoned in the first version 
um, shows itself to be important again in a later version, or maybe the second version reveals that a whole lot of things you thought were terribly important are not actually important at mm. all. It's just a, a very interesting way of doing things, and I think it explains why her writing is so layered and so nuanced, because she has put so much work into it. It was a beautiful metaphor she used. I also loved that. I was very taken with what she said about keeping your focus on what the real project is and I think she said the heart of the work or, or a phrase like that um, yes. about focusing on what you're really doing with the writing and not getting caught up in what are the publication needs yes. and I think that's something that becomes the more books you've written the harder it is to keep your focus on the heart of your project and not think about, well, what do the publishers want? What did the Americans say last time? What yes. feedback did I get last time? So that's something I'm definitely going to take back to the page with me from this and try to remain focused on the heart of my project. And also approaching it from an attitude of humility. Absolutely. That really spoke to me. I mean, I think I tend to get into this mode of thinking, oh, I'm a seasoned writer. Yes. I know how to do this. You know, this is the nth number of times I've been doing it. Nobody can teach me anything, etc. And she really approaches that blank page from a position of humility. I don't know how to write. I'm learning this from the beginning. Mm. Mm. And I found that very inspiring. Very inspiring. It will be interesting to speak to her after her 20th book, yeah. as I'm sure there will be a 20th book. I hope so. Because I think she is a writer who will keep producing. And it will be interesting to see if that changes or remains the same. Indeed, indeed. Um, what tips do you have for our listeners today, Okay, Gail? so I want to talk today about every writer's worst question. Where do you get your ideas? Right. And you yes. know, the reality is, I think if you are a writer, you already have ideas. But for me, every idea starts with a what if. Mm -hmm. Um, and I will be in a situation and I will think, what if? And then I will build on that situation and I, and I will come to an idea. So my latest book, Little Secrets, that the what if is, what if you're trying to Google stalk someone and you can't find anything on them? What does that mean? What if it's because? And then the idea came out of that. So I always start with the what if. And I heard a very interesting masterclass. And unfortunately, because my memory is not a very trustworthy thing, I don't remember who the masterclass was with, but it was a writer who said he'll look at a situation and he'll put together elements of the situation that don't necessarily go together. So he'll be driving and he'll say, there's a man in the car next to me who's on his phone and there's a woman over there who's brushing her hair on the side of the road. Why is she brushing her hair on the side of the road? Is she signaling to the man in the car? Are they involved in a spy plot? And this is their code. And then he'll build his story from that. And I love that idea. And I sometimes as I'm driving, I do that just for fun to play with different ideas. I really enjoy that. Your advice for the week, Fiona? Well, it's, it's based on what Yoande was saying. And I think it's, it's a drum that I keep on banging, which is to make writing fit in with your daily life. Now I'm picturing Yoande running after <laughs> two busy boy toddlers mm. and also having ideas sparking in her brain and just dictating something or jotting a note in a notepad, making a record of something so that when she does have her lovely free Friday, she's got those elements ready to work with. 
I think there's a, a myth of the writer as usually being a man who's locked up in his basement mm. or his study and nobody's allowed to disturb mm. him. And he has a wife and children who have to be very quiet mm. and are only allowed to present him with his meals three times a day. And his work is terribly important and he has to be left in perfect peace. And I think that we as women writers don't have that kind of luxury. Some mm. of us are running after busy toddlers or we rushing around doing school lifts mm. and we still manage to be creative and productive. Um, and I think just finding a way to keep a record mm. of the little ideas that flit across your brain so that when you do have a moment to put them mm. all together. They're there. You haven't lost them. Mm. There isn't that terrible feeling of, oh boy, I had such a great idea and now it's gone mm. and it's mm. very often gone forever. Mm. So I just found that interesting and inspiring. Absolutely. And I think it's a reminder if someone with two twin toddlers can find the time to write a book, we can all find the time to write a book. Very true. So if, like us, you are feeling inspired by anything you one day had to say, please let us know on Twitter or Instagram. And in the meantime, we wish you a very good writing week. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.